happy Saturday. It's September 17th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to Saturday. Ashley, let's just get right to it. It's been a week. You're in London. What is the mood over there as we sort of move towards Monday and Queen Elizabeth's funeral? It's been quite a week of dramatic moments. Love to know your impressions of it. Strange times over here, Michael. It's sort of like Groundhog Day. You wake up and there are still pictures of Queen Elizabeth II staring at you from every billboard and from every shop window. It's very surreal. I will say I'm impressed with the royal family and their ability to organize and micromanage this 10-day period of mourning because it's a pretty big feat to get the entire country on board for this. As you know, Monday is going to be a bank holiday here, meaning no schools will be in session, no government agencies will be operational. Some neighborhoods may not even have their trash picked up. We are all expected to stay home, watch the funeral, and mourn with our friends. And as an American here in London, it's a very unusual time. It's been 70 years since we've had the death of a monarch here, and certainly very few people can remember what life was like without Elizabeth II. So there's a little bit of confusion. What are we supposed to do here? How much mourning are we supposed to be doing? How sad are we supposed to feel? And slowly but surely we figured it out this week. But I think I speak for many of us when I say we are looking forward to this period being over. From over here, it's been strange. What pops in one's mind, what stays in one's mind, the small moments, the large moments, Charles having battles with his fountain pens, trying to decode the body language between the fab four of Harry and Meghan and William and Kate as they step out. So you have these sort of high, solemn moments and then these, I guess, like in any drama, these more unusual moments, right? What I find so astounding about Elizabeth is she was almost gaff-proof. In 70 years, we never saw her make really serious errors or mistakes. Or she was always poised and always kept it entirely together. I mean, King Charles III has barely been in power, if you want to call it power, for a week. And we already see the guy warring with his fountain pens and acting like a complete buffoon. I thought it was extreme when people were saying that the monarchy died with Elizabeth, but you never know. I mean, it's interesting how she seemed to sort of exist, certainly before the internet, but she was never subject to the pitfalls of the internet the way that others are. I don't know if it was because of a factor of her age or the respect that she had already engendered, but she just seemed to exist on a different plane. And Charles certainly does not exist on that same plane. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see the knives come out for him in the next few weeks, months, and years. Yeah, it's not only that she ruled for 70 years, but she was of a generation that came up that still lived a private life. And it wasn't just because she was the queen, but it's, it's a generational thing. I think she was Charles, a bit of a caught in the beginnings of kind of social media and things and technology. We, we refer to his conversations with Camilla being recorded and then disseminated on the web and things like that. And whereas Elizabeth, she very definitely maintained a mystery about her. And in some ways, there's not much mystery about Charles. And it's also what happens when you're 73 and you've lived your entire life in public. But I find it, I wonder what his temperament is. With Elizabeth, someone said it best, when she entered a room, you felt that the UK was entering the room. She personified that. She had that gravitas. Maybe Charles will, that mantle will sit more comfortably on him as time goes by, but also seems to be a little ill-fitting right now. Serve it up, baby. I will say, Michael, it is a tall order for a guy whose original career aspiration was to be Camilla's Tampax. I'm sorry. I still can't forget that. Every time I see a picture of Charles, I think Tampax, Tampax, Tampax. I know it's a 30-year-old joke. It's a true fact. It's a man who wanted to be in her knickers. Yeah, as is, I think you've mentioned also in your story this week, that London being London and society being society, there's also people jockeying for the best or the most prestigious place in order to sort of view the funeral on Monday, right? 
right? Right. There are only about 2,000 people that are going to be crowding their way into Westminster Abbey, and it will largely be the people you would expect. Heads of state, high-level aristocracy, and Windsor family intimates. These are the people that have worked with the Queen service the queen, collaborated with the queen on all sorts of matters. It's not going to be a splashy funeral. You're not going to have Elton John performing or you're not going to have the Versaces in the front row or anything like that. The focus really has to be on the queen and her reign and the pomp and circumstance surrounding that. So it should be an interesting moment. But it's funny, people are very torn here about how they should commemorate the occasion. Because Monday is a bank holiday, we're all going to be home watching this from our televisions. But some people may be gathering at the Turf Club, which is a gentleman's club, that overlooks St. James Park and the mall. You have a great view of the processionals from there. So TPD, we'll see what happens. But I do think there are going to be a couple of discreet gatherings. But restaurants are closed here, which is interesting because the restaurateurs I've spoken with are all still shell-shocked by the lockdowns imposed by COVID. And here they are locking down yet again. Would the Queen have wanted this? Who knows? But the messaging is very clear. It is a day to mourn and pay our respects. And so we shall be doing that. And on the Harry note as well. I was also reading today that we've discussed in the past couple episodes that the Harry autobiography, which is scheduled for the fall, and was it going to come out? Was it not? Was it going to delay it now because of the Queen? But apparently it's still on track, which, but I can only imagine that they would be trying to shoehorn in a last chapter where it's, he never expected to be back in the UK when she died. And lo and behold, he was and what the drama, if they can get that onto the page, boy, that would be something extraordinary as well. Yes, I agree. It's interesting. I've only been here for a few short weeks and yet I'm becoming more Markle critical by the moment. I will say that. I thought you were going to say you're going to become more team Markle, but what was your reading when the four of them came out and uh, over the weekend to review bouquets left at the gates and, and to, it's just like she can't seem to catch a break today. There's like, well, it was delayed because she needed to get hair and makeup, which I thought, well, it's a little tough on someone, but what was your take of it? I mean, the woman deserves hair and makeup. Let's give her hair and makeup. I mean, I can't hold her to fall for that. Like everybody else has it. Why shouldn't she? It was a good moment. I thought it was fundamentally, I think Diana here is still a bit of a raw nerve. And I think the people of the UK really want to see these two brothers getting along for whatever reason. It signals a type of continuity. And there was so much empathy for them when they lost their mother. And the idea was that they would always have each other. And it hasn't been that way for the past few years. Life has ripped them apart. And it's been so well publicized. I think everyone is looking for a happy ending for this story. Maybe not with Meghan and Harry as returning to the royal family and becoming, I think that's perhaps an overly rosy way of looking at it. But the idea that the brothers are getting along and making peace for the sake of the family and the monarchy at large, I think that's fundamentally, that was a welcome sign. It's true. I think Diana always, from what I've read, positioned them like you will always have each other, right? And yet the rift seems so profound. And despite what Oprah might be prognosticating. Who knows? It's just, again, what we all project so much onto them, uh, not just those boys, those men, but uh, the whole family, because it's just, it's every family. Yes, indeed. Contrary to popular belief, there are other things to talk about, Michael. Bake Off is back. What's back? <laughs> Bake Off is back. Bake Off is back. You British people, you British adjacent people now. You're going to go like, Bake Off is back. I'm like, what? What happened to American shows? Okay. You're all excited about that? Look, to me, the best part of living in England is being able to watch Bake Off on the normal schedule. There's no longer a Netflix delay, and I'm happy about that. I won't apologize. Well, my last note about things in the UK is we have a unbelievable 
story this week, which I'll just try and summarize it by Paul Karuna Galizzi. And as you're watching the funeral and you're seeing Parliament and the landmarks of London on Monday, just remember this story, which we've, it's about what's known as London Grad, and it details a curious kind of seedy path that a man named Yevgeny Lebedev took. He's the son of a former KGB officer and now full-time oligarch. But in December 2020, he entered the House of Lords in Parliament as a regular civilian and left as the Baron of Hampton in the London borough of Richmond-upon-Thames and of Siberia in the Russian Federation. He has became the only Russian-born peer in the House of Lords. And Paul Karuna Gilitsi, our writer, digs into how this is possible and sort of touches on, unfortunately, there's been a little bit of money changing hands and influence peddling, as you might say, in certain echelons of British power. It's a fascinating look at another side of life in the UK. Okay, we have to get out of England. What else is happening in the rest of the world? Well, there's a lot going on in the rest of the world. And on the show, we have great guests this week. Andrew Rifkin joins us from Europe, where he reveals why Vladimir Putin has decided to turn the American basketball superstar Brittany Griner into a pawn. And we have esteemed documentarian Ken Burns and his directing partner, Lynn Novick, talking about their new film, America and the Holocaust. Ken has been churning out incredible documentaries ever since 1990, when his first major one. The Civil War became an absolute phenomenon. Now he is back with the U.S. and the Holocaust, which is premiering September 18th on PBS. This is an untidy addition to his canon because his most recent ones have been about baseball and jazz. The Holocaust is clearly a much more fraught and tragic story that he tells through documentary, and we're so happy to have him here to speak about it. So we want to welcome Ken Burns and his co-director, Lynn Novick. Welcome, Ken Burns. Why was this a subject that piqued your interest and how did you decide to approach it? Well, you know, Lynn and I worked with Sarah Botstein, our other co-director on this, on A History of World War II, written by Jeffrey C. Ward, who's the author of this film. That came out in 2007 and afterwards a lot of people came up to us asking some pretty surprising questions seem to be based mostly on misinformation or disinformation or sort of conventional wisdom about who was a villain and who wasn't a villain on the American side in the Holocaust. The presumption is that Americans didn't know what was going on during the Holocaust. They did. Uh, they were really, really well informed uh, from the very beginning. 3,000 articles in 1933 alone, the first year of Hitler's rise to power, about mistreatment of Jews and, and things like that. So the question is, why did we let in only a fraction of the people we could have left in? And so it's a story about American eugenics and economic dislocation and pernicious immigration laws and prevalent anti-Semitism and racism and treatment of Native peoples, all of this sort of creates this kind of toxic brew in a way that makes it impossible for not only our government, the executive, the Congress, but also the American people to see it into their hearts to let in more than a fraction of the people that desperately needed to be let in and could have been let in, even under the, the limited quota laws. And so it's an examination of that. But then if, if it's an examination of that, it also has to be a reviewing, a re-investigating of the Holocaust itself. And paradoxically, I think 
by narrowing our focus by the U.S. and the Holocaust, it allowed us to see in a sort of broader and clearer relief, at least for us, the Holocaust itself. And so I think even people who think themselves well-versed in the Holocaust will be surprised by this. And I think certainly everybody will be surprised by the dimensions of this American perspective that is is um, the reason why we made it. Lynn, one of the, um, or Ken, as you just sort of touched on here, you know, Americans did know about the Holocaust. And yet, I think one of the things that people who watch this will be find echoes that a lot of these conversations happening in the 30s and 40s echo now and, and uh, with immigration and who do we let in and why. And you discuss an infamous gentleman named Madison Grant. And I was wondering if you could just, I, who I think represents some some ideas that that are that, that are just as sort of like um, potent or, or gaining as much traction today as they were 70 80 years ago right yes ken ken just alluded to madison grant when he's talking about eugenics which was a so-called science it was not a science at all it was a a theory in search of data and the theory was that the nordic people as they saw themselves were superior to everybody else and that they then went out and tried to find the data to find to prove this and they did all kinds of pseudo studies with unbelievable confirmation bias that we would now call it to prove that there was a hierarchy of races as if people from spain were a different race than people from england literally and they they had a whole belief structure around this that sounds kind of wacky and crazy now it wasn't then it was considered science it was considered re respectable some of the most uh, prominent people in america including someone named madison grant who was a leader in the conservation movement he helped to create glacier national park and save the everglades and you know was a leading light in new york sort of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant elite circles. And he published books about this and, you know, never stopped talking about how the white race, as he saw it, the Nordic race, had to protect itself. And essentially that translated into an idea that immigrants, certain kinds of immigrants, are bad, are inferior, don't belong here. And this was in reaction to wave upon wave of immigrants coming from Southern and Eastern Europe, Jewish immigrants, Irish and Italian and Catholic immigrants that were seen by the elite as not worthy of American citizenship and not worthy of being here. And, you know, they basically talk about things like we're committing race suicide and, you know, there's a dire crisis that we have to do something about. And the something was to change our whole way of thinking about ourselves and to stop immigrants from coming here from these places that they thought were ruining our country. And that kind of fear and urgency and this anxiety about being replaced by these lesser exactly. forms informs that Johnson Reed Immigration Act informs our insensitivity to the crisis that is developing in Europe and informs, as you suggest, the echoes of today. You can hear in Stephen Miller, uh, for example, domestic advisor to President Trump, the same kind of illogic and insensitivity that Madison Grant displayed. It's a very dangerous, very toxic uh, situation because it's in effect what, of course, racism and, and nativism and, and anti-Semitism all require is the othering of human beings. There's a moment in our film where the great Holocaust scholar and historian Deborah Lipstadt says, the time to stop a genocide is before it happens, to which I might just, with all due respect to her, add, based on your question about the echoes of today, the time to save a democracy is before it's lost. 
because these things go really quickly. Berlin is the hippest place on earth in 30 and 31 and 32 in arts and music in cinema and painting and intellectual discourse. And then it's not. And so as we see today, the great crises in the past of the civil war and the depression and the second world war, we're in another one in which the institutions of our democracy have been rocked to their very foundation. And we have, it has been revealed to us their fragility. And this echoes in the past and now in the present in ways that are quite disturbing. And, and I think requires anybody to look and see that the end results of authoritarian governments are the mass murder of millions of citizens. Ken, throughout your career, you have told so many incredible, distinctly American stories that reveal the best and also the worst about this country. But by and large, the American spirit and American exceptionalism does loom large in much of your work. What is giving you cause to feel hopeful right now about the future of America? Well, let me just also say, and I think Lynn would would, would just back this up, our, our film is about one of the worst moments in human history, the Holocaust. But within it, it's populated by extraordinary individuals and organizations, including people within the United States government. But there are lots of great stories there. And so I think for us, it's just a question of calling balls and strikes. You know, if you're going to say you're the most exceptional people, as Americans love to do, then you've got to be as honest about your flaws. You know, now we're in, a, we're in a phase that is very similar to why the previous question about the echoes of today with regard to immigration is there, where we're now so hypersensitive that we don't even want to talk about anything bad. We don't want to teach our children about slavery. So, so all of a sudden you're, you're, you're essentially condemning us to a kind of second or third rate status as a country, because you have to know where you've been in order to know where you are, to know where you're going. It's been the hallmark of the American experiment that you would first entrust its people to its own self-government, that you would promote public education available to as many people as possible, and that you would try to make the most literate and informed citizenship you could have. And and now that doesn't seem to be as central to people as it once was. And we just think that kind of self-critical view is hugely important. It's fascinating. Well, Ken, Lynn, we can't thank you enough for not only making this incredible film that everybody should see, but also for joining us to give us your insights into what makes it so unique. Thank you. Thank you very much. Congratulations. Have a wonderful day. On the subject of people being detained, we need to talk about Brittany Griner. As many of you know, she's the American basketball player imprisoned in Russia. And now there's talk that Vladimir Putin might swap her for a notorious Russian arms dealer named Victor Boot. And our writer, Andrew Rifkin, is here to tell us how Putin has turned Griner into a diplomatic pawn. We have Andrew Rivkin here to tell us all about it. He is a Russian-American screenwriter and journalist who is now living in Barcelona after the Russian invasion of Ukraine forced him to emigrate. Welcome, Andrew, and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, so let's back up. We have not heard a heck of a lot about Brittany Griner in the last few weeks. There's been a lot of other global news going on. Where is she right now, and where are we at in this story? She's uh, in a Russian prison. She's serving a... She started serving a nine-year sentence that was just like an incredibly harsh sentence that was handed out for for bringing a marijuana vape cartridge into the country. So, like, she flew in Moscow, I think. They searched her. Probably it was targeted. They knew something. They found the cartridge, and 
you know, she's been under custody ever since. The reason why, you know, these news started popping up about Reiner and Boot is because at the end of July, if I remember correctly, we started hearing news of, you know, talks between the White House and the Kremlin, you know, possible prisoner exchange. And they all wanted to keep it sort of under sheets. They didn't want to be like very public, uh, these prisoner exchange talks. But from what we found out, Russia wants Victor boot back, who's the most well, considered the most notorious arms dealer of the 21st century. And for that, they would be ready to release Brittany Griner. They also wanted Mr. Krasikov back. He's an assassin. He's a GRU assassin, which is the Russian military intelligence. He's serving time in Germany. If I'm not mistaken, it's a life sentence because he assassinated one of uh, Chechen dissidents in Berlin. It was a very big story a few years back. From what we understand, the talks stalled for now because Russia, obviously, it, Russia wants two people for one person. You know, these uh, prisoner exchange things, they're mostly like tit for tat, eye for an eye kind of thing. So it's still going on, but that's basically why we've been hearing about Mr. Boot so much lately. So Andrew, tell us more about Victor Boot as you touched on here and in your story. He's one of the world's most notorious arms dealers. Can you tell us more about him? And also then I'd love to know, was it as strategic on Putin's part to basically seize Griner because he had his eye on Boot or did it just sort of like work out that way? Okay, well, uh, to summarize Victor Boot, I would say um, he's the Richard Branson of evil. A brilliant businessman, uh, just absolutely brilliant. But his business is, you know, arms trade. He's a gun runner. He was born in the Soviet Republic of Tajikistan, uh, which is now an independent country in Central Asia. From a very early age, he showed propensity for languages. Um, accounts differ, but... I think he knows something around nine languages, of which six just absolutely fluently. In Moscow, he tried to get into the very prestigious Institute of Foreign Relations, but since he came from a region that most people couldn't even pronounce, he didn't get in because that place is for like KGB posh kids, nomenclatura, and and not a guy like him. So he went to serve in the military, and from there on, like his career started, that's when he went to Africa as a translator, Angola, Mozambique. Around that time, the Soviet Union fell apart completely, and he started up his own little transport company that was just shuttling around various cargo in Africa using these very old Soviet planes that they had stocks off back in Africa or Ukraine and Russia. He sort of like consolidated them. And of course, you know, it was weapons because after the Soviet Union fell, all these enormous stocks of weapons in the former Soviet states and the former Eastern Bloc, they were essentially just lying there, useless tens of thousands of rifles, tanks, even combat helicopters. He was smart enough to understand that what he could do is buy these weapons on the cheap in these Eastern European countries and sell them to the places that, you know, in Russia, they call them hotspots where you would have military conflicts. For the most part, it was Africa and the Middle East, uh, Afghanistan, where he's said to have provided weapons for, for both Al-Qaeda and the Northern Alliance. Sometimes he financed both sides in any war. He lived in Africa for quite a while. Yeah, essentially, that was his business up until 2008 when he was arrested. He was arrested in time. Thailand. It was a sting operation by the DEA. And ever since, he's been locked up in Illinois, in an Illinois supermax prison. And then 
Griners in prison in in Russia. Is it a you know fortunate circumstance for Putin that she was seized, or do people think that he targeted her in order to sort of like then have someone valuable to trade for boot, or is it just as more like he stumbled into this American? citizen that he can now use as a pawn to trade for someone, right? In the last few years, Russian authorities have been arresting Americans who are in the country, uh, mostly uh, on drug charges for bringing drugs into the country or they're caught with drugs. I think it's only one or two Americans there, Paul Whelan, someone else who are arrested on Spanish charges. So for the most part, it's drugs. And already when they were arresting so many Americans, you could sort of understand that they're building a prisoner exchange fund with the United States. So I think now in this time of war when, you know, the relationship has soured to the point where Russia has essentially nothing to lose in its relationship with the U.S. because it, it soured to the point of no return. That, I think, uh, led Putin to, you know, make the offer. I don't know if she actually brought that vape cartridge into the country or it was planted, but the fact that it's undeniable that they were building this like prisoner exchange fund and, and she's just part of it. She uh, probably just the most high profile person to be arrested in Russia. So I'm pretty sure it was all planned out because uh, Russians, they wanted to get boot back since 2008. And that's like for 14 years, they've been trying to get this notorious arms trader back. And I think in 2022, you know, they finally have the chips to trade him in. And what happens if Boot gets out? Oh, he's going to be a hero. He's definitely going to be a hero in Russia. You know, our guy, he didn't break. He didn't snitch. He didn't cooperate with uh, American authorities. He did nothing of that. He remained loyal to his motherland. Right now, at this point in the war, when Russia is just searching for all these weapons because uh, its own stocks are depleted, it's trying to buy weapons it's buying weapons, UAVs in Iran, artillery in North Korea, et cetera, et cetera. It definitely needs someone like Boot to, to facilitate the process, you know, to get, to get more guns, which is exactly what he does. Because the guy's 55, even though he served a 14-year sentence, he started at a very early age. He started doing the gun running at a very early age. So he was successful. By the time he was 30, he was already... You know, he was already number one. So he's only 55. He can get back in the business just in the blink of an eye. You know, he'll be traveling the world in one of his cargo planes, just like loading up on guns, helping Russia, you know, in its brutal invasion. Andrew, there's been a lot of talk and debate about Brittany Griner's family and friends and her WNBA colleagues have been extremely vocal in advocating for her release. That's not the way generally things have been done at the State Department in the past in situations like this. How do you think that that's played out for Griner and her family? And what do you think the long term ramifications of that are? I see it as a conflict between, you know, the public side of this matter where Griner's family, there's this public campaign to get her back. The WNBA is part of it. You know, they're all trying to, to get their girl back who was like wrongfully detained in Russia, like essentially like taken hostage. But, however, the American intelligence community considers Boot to be such a precious asset in a way for them, it's like capturing Osama bin Laden because it's such a notorious criminal and it's such a big victory for, you know, American security services. Literally, like this kind of operation is one of the most successful ones that, you know, the U.S. intelligence had in the 21st century. So to a lot of them, 
this exchange may be a little unjust because like people who I spoke to, they would, they said that while they do understand Reiner's story, they kind of consider like, you know, trading boot for a high level spy. Yes, they, they can understand that for some concessions, but for just a, essentially a civilian, albeit a celebrity to them, it's a little unjust, but from what I've been told, these decisions, the prisoner swaps, especially on this like level, very high level, they're authorized by one person and one person only, and that's the president of the United States. So, you know, if Biden says that, you know, we're making the trade, then they're making the trade. But again, a lot of people in the intelligence community do consider that letting boot go would be a huge mistake. Well, it's a fascinating story and the one that, one that we're going to continue to watch and talk to you about, Andrew. Get ready. I will. Thanks. Michael, the weekend beckons. I know you're going to spend most of your time mourning the queen, but surely you have something to recommend to us. I do. I have another great Brit we could all um, sort of spend the weekend with. Did you see the, the Baz Luhrmann movie, Elvis? Yes, I did. Only for the costumes. Okay. So, you know, like there's there's two ways to sort of tell a, tell a biography. You can do the biopic with the queen or Elvis and, and you and you get like, you know, it's, it's all comes flaming at you. Or you can do what director Brett Morgan has done with Moon Age Daydream. His far-out maximalist documentary about David Bowie, as we report in this week's issue. Uh, and it's a piece written by Jonathan Dean about the making of it. Uh, the film is, you know, deals, I think, so well with separating the person from the many personas of David Bowie, uh, a guy who was complex, almost this hall of mirrors in terms of the the sort of uh, the the the, the personas he put on. It deals, as I said, with his legacy, which has until recently been carefully handled. And he's one of, I think, obviously, clearly rock music's most singular artists. You know, this is a movie that Morgan, who worked on the documentary, which you probably all love, The Kid Stays in the Picture, worked on this one for years, even had a heart attack while he was toiling away, not because of the stress, but it just goes to show you the sort of drama laced inside of it. But it's full of revelations, and it relies primarily on just archival footage of Bowie and Bowie interviews and Bowie talking about himself. Uh, I found among the most revealing pieces of it is the relationship that Bowie spoke about with his mother and his brother and how it kind of informs that theme of isolation in his work. So the movie is called Moon Age Daydream. It's out in theaters now. I'm sure it'll be coming to streaming world soon enough. Wonderful. And you, my dear? I do have something for you this week. Attention, theater lovers. All the talk of Broadway right now is the arrival of Tom Stoppard's Leopoldstadt. This is a play that debuted in the West End in London in 2020, and it's set in Vienna. The name of the play, Leopoldstadt, is taken from the Jewish quarter of Vienna. This takes place in the first half of the 20th century. It's a story of love and hardship, and it follows one extended family over the course of many years, So it's only two hours long, so it's not too tedious, but it's really an incredible play. It's directed in New York by Patrick Marber, and it is just starting on Broadway this week on the 14th. So it's an incredible story about a momentous family, and you're going to be hearing a lot about this, not only from us, but also from the Tony Awards people. And uh, I highly recommend it. Leopold Stat on Broadway. 
now. I thought the talk of Broadway was Leah Michelle taking over in the, the lead role in, in Funny Girl, but... Ugh, I want to see that. I, I'm sad that I missed Beanie Feldstein in that. Uh, me too, but it sounds like Michelle is doing a great job, so... Who knows? Next time. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We wish you a wonderful weekend. Michael, please read us out. With pleasure. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, Thanks again for joining us. God save the king.